I'm interviewing a very gracious Austin Lucas for Adobe and Teardrops because I'm almost a half hour late because I was reading a good book. <laughs> what book were you reading, actually? Um, do you know the... Are you into sci-fi or fantasy at all? Yes. Uh, have you heard of Gideon the Ninth? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Is it good? Yeah, it's so... Yeah, the, this was the sequel. So Gideon the Ninth is kind of like this weird... I don't even know how to describe it. It like starts out as like a sci-fi novel, and it kind of ends up being like an Agatha Christie mystery. Whoa! At the end, and it's just like, and like it's laugh out loud funny and all that. And then uh-huh. the sequel was like completely different, uh-huh. and then also like forces you to look at the first book in a completely different lens. Wow, um, that's cool. So I was like getting ready to maybe think about going back and rereading the first one. <laughs> Mm. I love that when a book makes you like feel like you have to go back again and and read it like read the other like the other book just so that you can like understand it because as things get revealed you know what I mean like and you like misinterpret so many things you know like it's like when when characters uh like you're led to believe that a certain character is sort of a, a nefarious or whatever or a good guy and like or you know like and then at the end of the book you finally realize exactly like what was happening and then you have to reread it like one of the classic examples of this is like when i was young i was really really into Anne rice books like i was like obsessed with the vampire series and like i remember like when i read interview with the vampire how much i hated lestat and then you read Vampire Lestat and all of a sudden you're just like, God, Louis is such a total chode. Like he's just so obnoxious. And like, and it's just like you immediately see things from a different angle. And then you have to reread the other ones so that you can like, kind of like gather some of the information that you didn't, you know what I mean? Like that wasn't quite all together. I know it's not like the most intellectual version of that, but it's just like the one thing that I'm like, I was obsessed with those books when I was a teenager. So i never got around to them i feel like i should i don't know yeah i think it's i think it's hard to say whether or not it's really worth it but like you know when i was a kid like uh, i don't know like i feel like the vampire tropes have sort of been milked for all of their worth you know what i mean like at this point and like at the time there was really something about those books that like i don't know they were just like so sexy and like uh they really made me kind of long for something else i don't know i think maybe i don't know it's a weird thing but like when i was growing up i used to literally like i would go outside at night Mm -hmm. and i would think to myself like maybe tonight's the night that a vampire will find me and i'll become immortal forever like i used to romanticize about it so much you know like (laughs) like it was a thing. Anyway, sorry, we're getting sidetracked. No, I don't think so. Because <laughs> I feel like I feel uh, the same way, or felt the same way when I was younger, too. Like, what if there was, like, a different or, like, a better world out there? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know that, like, the world of vampires well, right. is necessarily a better world, but it's like, yeah, it's like, what would you... I don't know, what would you give to be immortal and also have, like, powers and you know what i mean like and have these like i don't know this way of like seducing people and like all this different i don't know there's just like all these different things at play in that that especially spoke to like 
a very awkward, like, mm-hmm. you know, young person who, like, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had much going on in, like, my own world anyway, socially, you know what I mean? Like, or with my family, and which I think is, like, pretty normal for a young person to feel like. So, like, so for me, it kind of, like, created this, like, fantasy world that I could, like, hope, dream of and, like, dream about and, like, hope for. And then, like, you know, when Vampire the Masquerade came out, like, the role-playing game, right. like, I got, like, super obsessed with that also. So it's like, and then that just, like, sort of expanded this, like, whole obsession that I had with, like, with uh, vampirism or whatever as, like, a teenager. <laughs> Did you have a god phase? <laughs> uh, I, I would say that, like, I always was, like, a kind of a goth punk in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I was really uh, into, like, uh, you know, first wave goth. And, and like, I don't feel like um, that that was, like, a secondary thing to, like, to punk. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that, like, a lot of the early goth bands were, in essence, just, like, kind of punk bands. And so they kind of fit with that ethos. There were, most of them, like, were from the very early on super DIY and stuff like that. And I mean, like one of the very first punk bands of all time, the damned is basically like, you know, like birth of goth also. So like, you know, you talk about the damned, Susie Sue and, you know, like, and, uh, the cure and sisters of mercy, you know, like, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, uh, was always really, really, um, a part of my musical DNA or whatever from the time I was like super young, you know, I mean like my brother got me into like, you know, uh, all of that stuff at the same time as like, you know, uh, the dead Kennedys and the misfits and, and, you know, like DOA and black flag, you know? So it's like, I was listening to sisters of mercy and Christian death, like alongside, you know, like, uh, you know, fear and, uh, the buzzcocks and you know like that kind of stuff so yeah just kind of all <laughs> came together so I don't know if I really ever had like a goth phase quote unquote like a lot of people might call a goth phase I just always listened to goth punk alongside all the other punk stuff mm-hmm. you know like and certainly like I was obsessed with vampires so like obviously like I had a very distinct uh, you know love of like the the dark and you know, like, or whatever, like, you know, but I think, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there was like the, there was a certain like distinct sexuality about it that like had no rules, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, and it was like, uh, like, or maybe not that it didn't have any rules, but there was like no, uh, um, there was no, uh, dogmatic, like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't like any inhibitions uh, around it. Yeah. There was yeah. no inhibitions like, and, and yeah, maybe there was like some dogmatic, like uh pressure because like in some of these cases, like the vampires knew that they'd given up their souls, but at the same time, they're like, you know, living their best, uh, undead life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and like mm-hmm. not having, not adhering to any rules and, like, I think that that, like, always really appealed to me because, you know, like, it's like if you're an outsider and you don't, like, always feel like you see yourself represented, like, you know, like, in other forms of, like, mainstream media or whatever, like, you're going to latch on to that kind of thing, you know, and it's going to feel, like, exciting, 
you know. Well, it also kind of so. puts some of your song titles into perspective now, like Immortal Americans or Already Dead. <laughs> uh, I'm just yeah, teasing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I, I definitely have a flair for that sort of uh, imagery. Uh, uh, and maybe like one of the things I like to do is like kind of uh, flip those things around and, and make a kind of gothic heartland sort of, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, the, the soundscape and the imagery and stuff like that, like they all do tie in together. And I think that like, you know, like my favorite songwriter is probably, mm-hmm. uh, Jason Molina, you know, like, so songs, Ohio mm-hmm. and Magnolia electric company. Like, I mean, to me, he's like the quintessential sort of like, heartland goth songwriter you know what i mean like he like mixed all that stuff so like fluidly you know like and perfectly and like i mean if there's ever a single songwriter that i wanted to emulate you know what i mean like it's always been sort of him i mean i've worked really diligently to make sure that like i masked it well and i made my own made his stuff into my own thing but like i mean yeah i my first songs were literally like all super slow mm-hmm. and all like using a lot of his like, you know, kind of like already laid out imagery and stuff like that. Like it took me a while to find my own thing because I was so obsessed with him. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it feels like uh, your new album, Alive in the Hot Zone, um, goes places that I hadn't haven't heard from like your solo albums as much. Right. Like, I think, um, sorry, I got to look up the song to remind me of it. Uh, like, American Pyre feels, like, really different from other songs of yours that I've heard. But I also haven't really dug into your hardcore or rock, <laughs> your be- your older material. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, like, I don't think that I've ever done anything sonically that sounds like this record, mm-hmm. you know, like, before. Uh, I mean, I think that there's, like, hints. I mean, this, I don't think that it sounds like it's not me, you know what I mean? Like, but like, certainly like none of my, my punk or hardcore bands were anything like this. And obviously, like, as you said, like, as far as my solo records go, this is definitely a new direction in a lot of ways, you know? I guess let's rewind a little bit. And for anyone who didn't already know, like you've been in Germany since before the quarantine, like you were on tour there and then decided to stay or? Yeah, so, well, I got here in December of Mm -hmm. last year. And my partner lives here in Germany, in Mainz. She's a German woman. And we basically, like, she had just been in the U.S. with me for three months. And she had visited me sort of consecutively, like, uh, several times for semi-extended periods of time uh, in Bloomington. Uh, And then it was time for me to reciprocate and Mm -hmm. come and stay with her for a while. And... Uh, I also had a European tour book. So basically like I came and I was staying for a few months and then at the end I was doing a tour and I literally like finished the tour the week before quarantine started. So, um, I, I was here in Germany and I was just getting ready to go home and she was going to come as well. Like we both had our plane tickets booked and everything like to come back to the U S and, um, that weekend that we were leaving was, the weekend that Donald Trump sent his text, his tweet, sorry, sent out his tweet saying that they would no longer accept travelers from Europe to the United States. 
and he wasn't clear about it. And the way that it sounded and all the pundits were like, does that mean that nobody can come to like, nobody knew what was happening, you know? And of course, like he just says bullshit. And then all of a sudden, like you've got to like wait until the legal experts actually tell you what that can mean based upon like what his presidential, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like orders can actually do versus the legality. Right. So then it's like they figure out, oh, no, well, American citizens and people who already have green cards and visas, they can come back to the United States, but nobody who, you know what I mean? Like, nobody else can come. Uh, and so uh, in the time that it took to actually mm-hmm. find out what was going on, I had to decide whether or not, like, how I felt about being denied entry back into the U.S. And, like, you know, Karina, my partner, and I, we really talked a lot about it, and we realized that, like, Maybe it would be not that big of a deal if I couldn't go home right away because, you know, like, let's see how America deals with this thing. Obviously, the Trump administration hadn't had a very good track record of uh, crisis management. And, like, I sort of knew that that was, you know what I mean? Like, I could tell because he was like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And everywhere else in the world, people were like, this is fucking crazy. You know, like, so... So we basically were like, you know what, if we can't go back, surely within a couple of weeks, they'll, you know what I mean, like get this thing figured out and and I'll be able to go home. So I changed my ticket. Then of course he was like, actually you can go home. So I was like, oh, well, I've already changed my ticket. Like, let's see how this plays out anyway. I'll just stay a little bit longer. And then it got worse and, and I was like, you know what, maybe I'll stay a little bit longer. And then it got worse and it was like, well, wow. Okay, so maybe I'll stay for another month. Surely by, you know, May, it'll be fine, you know, like, and then, you know, I, I mm. had tour dates booked that I had to cancel and I, you know, everyone had to do that shit. Same story. Everybody, everybody's have has the same story. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, uh, slowly but surely realized that I was living in Germany until the, the crisis was averted. And, you know, honestly, like now, uh, when the decision was made, it's not that I can't go back to the U.S. It's that I couldn't come back here once I'm there. Because the U.S. passport is literally worthless at this point. I should say that I just decided that uh, I wasn't willing to go back to the U.S. Uh, and risk not being able to come back here and have an extended period where I wasn't able to be with my partner. The situation that we're in right now uh, is mm. the kind of thing where... You're stuck in a rock between a rock and a hard place, no matter where you are. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, you know, here I am, I have my partner with me, you know, my brother lives in the Czech Republic. And so as a result, like I'm able to see him and, and my nieces and nephew and stuff like that. Like, uh, I've been able to see them a couple of times since I've been here. We took a family vacation this summer. It was absolutely amazing. You know, like, but I haven't seen my mom or my dad, you know, like, or my other sisters and brother and like, you know. Uh, a year and yeah. that's that's frightening you know uh, because I know that uh, my folks are old anyway you know like my folks are in their 70s and uh, even if it weren't for this pandemic and the risk of it like I wouldn't you know I mean they're it's not, I'm not saying that I think that they're all that they're all going to die immediately or something like that but it's like you know like who knows it's like they could live to be in their 90s or to be 100 but Nobody ever knows how long the human lifespan naturally is going to be. So, um, yeah, I, I hate the fact that I'm not able to um, 
spend time with my family, with my parents, especially. It's really, yeah. really upsetting. And of course I miss my house and I miss my cat. Uh, and you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we weren't able to see uh, my girlfriend's parents for six months because of all of her mother's risk factors and we're only a couple miles apart. Like when we first started feeling comfortable taking the subway again, it kind of felt like we were (laughs) re-exploring like New York City. And like we still Mm -hmm. watch like movies or documentaries from like a year or two ago. Like, oh, hey, remember living here? Because it just doesn't feel like we do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, I understand that, like, reestablishing of, like, of, like, of an old, a place that you used to live before this, you know, like, and re yeah. reestablishing life kind of in society, you know, like, when, like, when German society first started reopening, like, I was really freaked out about it. I was like, yeah. this can't be okay. And honestly, like, they, I think they should have waited another month. You know, like, I think that a lot of countries, if they would have waited one more month, you know, like they would have been a lot better off. They would have maybe stomped this out. And if, of course, the United States and Brazil and India and all these other countries hadn't been idiots, then we would be in a lot better shape as well. Uh, But yeah, uh, yeah, that that uh, whole entire thing, like I remember the first time I took a train was actually during the pandemic like during the early portion of it um i took it to to go record in the studio and like it was really scary like the entire 45 minute trip like to the studio on the train was like like the whole time it was just like i must have put on like hand sanitizer like fucking 10 times like while i was just sitting on the train for 45 minutes you know like it was like anytime i touched anything i was like ugh you know like <laughs> were you planning on recording the album uh like around this time and then you ended up having to do it in germany or did you find yourself like writing a lot of songs and feeling like well i'm here so i might as well make it well i was actually going to be making a totally different album with john paul white and ben tanner um and yeah so like Basically, uh, we're going to make the record with my band in Bloomington uh, with, you know, with the single lot crew. And uh, yeah, I, as that, uh, we kept on like kind of pushing back that recording timeline because of the pandemic. And then uh, at some point it was like, I've got all these other songs, these like new songs, you know, and they're all about right now. And maybe the thing I should do is go into the studio and record this album about right now, you know, like, and get it out just as quickly as I possibly can, you know? Cause I know that like this album, uh, you know, of course, like I want it to be a success and I want it to be, you know, like uh, well-received and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I felt like if I didn't make art, I wasn't doing what I'm here to do. You know, like I wasn't work going to be working and I would feel very strange. Um, and I also knew that like I could make the record I was planning on making at a later date, uh, you know, like and just put this one out. And if anything, putting out this record would help the next record, you know, like so I I really just I didn't plan on it. It was totally kind of by accident. And the next thing I knew, I just sort of 
uh, slipped and fell and made a new record. I like, I literally, like I, I say that and it's almost true. Like I slipped and fell like by accident into the studio that I made it in. And like, like I was supposed to record somewhere else and it fell through. And at the very last minute, a friend was like, Hey, there's these people over here, this studio, you should really go over there because their studio is super cool. And they just happen to have free time, you know, like on the day that I needed it. And I'm telling you like really last minute. And I went in there and I did the session and it turned out that like we got along really, really well. And like, you know, like, and within a few weeks, you know, like we were making plans to get together and record more stuff. And then like, you know, uh, we made the record like really quickly. I mean, we just like all of a sudden it was like, boom, you know, like, holy crap, we have a record. <laughs> like, so. And yeah. then you also live streamed some of that recording process or all of it. Really. Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, not all of it, but yeah, yeah. the um, the first, the beginning of the, 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 the formation of the record basically was a live stream of me recording uh, from that studio. Yeah. And that was like part of the process that that like began this like journey. Did you play all the instruments on the album, or did you get some folks who were in already in the, Germany with you to come and record other parts? It was all the people from the studio. Oh wow! Uh, I mean, I sang and played guitar, and then uh, the producer Ollie he played uh, most of the really amazing guitar work on the record. Is him. Uh, you know, like, obviously, like, I did some cool stuff, too, but, like, you know, he did really, like, an enormous amount of that, like, guitar work, uh, and, um, and then the drummer is, like, the second engineer there, and, you know, like, the bass player is, like, a pal, and they called up and was like, hey, come over and let's do this, you know, like, so, yeah, I mean, they're all, it's, it's all German folks and myself. I mean, it sounds great, and I think if I had it known, it would have just sounded like a continuation of Immortal Americans. I mean, I think yeah. that it, it's possible that we would have made this record, you know, like, together had I gone home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and these events had transpired, and, like, I would have been angry. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and and anxious and felt isolated anyway. Because even if I was back home in the U.S., I wouldn't have been able to see my mom. It's like you said, like, I mean, you know, like when you have elderly parents, you know, like, and there's a pandemic going around, like, it doesn't really do to go and spend time with them and be near to them. So it's very possible that I would have felt very similarly. uh, And especially because obviously, like, the uprising happened. And really the uprising was like that moment where I was just like, you know, I was just like, oh, fuck. You know, like, I'm just like, I'm just like really started writing, you know, like, and, uh, you know, I'd started writing before that, but like, it's just like, that was like when, like, I just started like cranking out songs, you know, like it was just like, boom, 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 boom. And yeah. 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 I mean, something I noticed about Alive in the Hot Zone is that the songs are are a lot more like overtly political as like a, a group. I mean, you've never hidden your politics like somebody loves you has been running through my head a lot but um i guess because it felt like you, these songs were coming out in a rush is it is that why you chose to have an album that was collectively a bit more political than you've been doing well i mean i didn't really choose to have an album that was a bit more political i think that like it just like the songs came out you know what i mean like they just like poured out of me uh 
And, like, I think that uh, whether I had gone home or not, the record would have ended up being political. You know, like, if I had made it home with the things that happened, you know, like, it, it was going to be yeah. a political album. You know, like, but, like... I have all these other songs that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like were meant to be the, you know what I mean? The record beforehand. And I used a couple of the songs on this record that were going to be on that record because they seemed like they really, really fit, you know, like with them. They were like the more political songs that like were already uh, what I was talking mm-hmm. about. Like, uh, well, you know, uh, where I was broaching the subjects of, um, you know, uh, the current administration and how I was feeling about it and uh, and especially like uh, things that were going on like with the Me Too movement and stuff that I'd already written, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, that just felt like they fit with this collection of songs, you know, like, um, but mm-hmm. but generally speaking, like the largest portion of this, this particular body of work just started like coming out, you know, like uh, through the pandemic and then into the uprising, so... Yeah, so it wasn't deliberate, except for that it just happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Right, because that's what's happening right now. Already Dead has, already, has also been in my head a lot, because I found out yesterday my my dad, after much deliberation, did in fact vote for Trump. He did. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, so another reason why I just wanted to escape into a book this morning. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, already dead is. Uh, I think writing that song was really the moment that the the record started to become uh, like in focus. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, I think all a lot of Americans. Uh, who are um, not, uh, I'll say authoritarian conservatives. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that, um, but that's like a very broad brush. Um, but uh, I would say that there's a lot of us out there who um, have been having to have very, very difficult conversations with our, uh, our family members and our uh, old friends as you said, like with your father. Uh, and, you know, I had a really large f- couple of falling outs with uh, old friends over the last uh, period of time. And uh, it really struck me that, because of course, like none of them had any interest in actually having discourse with me about these things. And I even called them up and talked to them on the phone. Uh, And, you know, I went through a very long process of trying to understand where they were coming from so that I could have conversations with them and talk to them about it because I knew that, that what their new ideologies, where they were coming from. And I wanted to be able to talk to them about, you know, like the roots of those ideologies, where they came from. Uh, and like, uh, none of them really had any interest in hearing what I had to say. And I think that this is a reoccurring theme 
that um, a lot of us are experiencing uh, very recently because a lot of people in the United States have gone down a very insane wormhole. People like are sort of swallowing this ideology without really being reflective about it, and then they can't accept that it's something that they are you know, sort of absorbing wholesale without thinking too critically about it because they think they're smarter than that. Yeah, or, you know, like... Um, or they don't... Do they think, yeah. or, or eventually, I think that they start to believe that they've, like, come up upon some sort of truth that, yeah. like, other people just don't know, you know, like, and that, like, we're just looking at it all wrong. Only distractions and abstractions
then I think, or American Pie is also, to me, kind of more about, like, that celebrity culture and how. Yeah, I mean, that song, yeah. uh, for me, like, uh, isn't about our celebrity culture as much as it is just about our, our culture that's built on a lie. You know, like, it's about American yeah. exceptionalism. You know, like, I juxtapose uh, my, like, progressive, liberal, like, you know, hippie college town and how we talk about the surrounding area, you know, like, including Indianapolis, which is the largest city in the state and is the capital. Um, because, like, uh, I think that we have these, like, systems, you know, like, in place to make us feel like we're exceptional or that we're better when, in fact, yeah. we're not. You know, like, mm. and of course, in the chorus, um, you know, I'm talking about how uh, the American, the shining city on the hill that is America, you know, supposedly, quote unquote, and that, um, you know, I'm saying that a beacon is a fire, you know, like, and uh, that that thing that you're seeing, that light that you're guiding people towards is a, a catastrophe, you know what I mean? Like, it's an enormous, you know, like, fire. You know, it's a pyre. Yeah, that's a funeral pyre.
since I know for so- many of your songs, there's like a specific point you want to make. How do you go about like writing the song itself? Like to me, a lot of your songs are very lyrically rich um, and dense. And I was just speaking with some other uh, artists about how they like how they structure their songs and like write an outline and kind of build around that. Um, so how do you approach a song where it's less of an emotion and more of like something, a very specific idea that you want to get across? Uh, my songwriting style is, uh, it does, I'm not going to say that it's chaos because that's not exactly <laughs> uh, true. Um, but like as uh, an ideological anarchist, um, mm-hmm. my songwriting process is very egalitarian uh, when it comes to <laughs> uh the utilization of different ideas coming into you know like through me and usually i just start with a riff and i start making sounds singing sounds that will sound good with the riff and i think Mm -hmm. to myself it sounds like i'm saying this it sounds like i'm saying this and i just start writing it um and usually i don't know what a song is about until i have finished the chorus you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, and sometimes I don't know what it's about, about until I've finished the whole entire song. And then I realize, oh, I've got to change this and I've got to change this because this song is definitely this, you know, like, mm-hmm. so, um, when I, when I write songs, I almost never think to myself, I have to write a song about this, you know, mm-hmm. like every once in a while, uh, I do, I sit down and I'm like, this has got to be a song that I've got to write about. This is something really important to me right now. But honestly, uh, in general, the way that I write is I just start writing and I see what comes, you know, like, and over time, you know, like it starts to, I, I, I oftentimes take a very long time, um, with self editing and, you know, like I, I will take, uh, I'll have many different drafts of a song Uh, until it finally feels like it's right. Because if I can't read the song as like a poem, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then like, I have no interest. It doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like it's Mm -hmm. gotta be a piece that I can read and it makes sense. You know, like at least to me, it's gotta make sense to me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's really cool. I, it's so interesting to talk to so many different people about how their different processes work. Uh, it's as unique as the individual, it turns out. <laughs> um, I guess one thing we can end on is, uh, I know we've been talking about a lot of really frustrating and difficult things, because that is, in fact, I would say the main emotions that all of us are dealing with right now. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you feel like you've discovered during this time where you've kind of had to completely change where and how you're living that you think you'll want to keep with you once we can go back to touring or moving about or having more freedom of movement? I think I would like to um, really like to spend more time uh, with my family and with uh, my partner. Uh, I really have loved this opportunity to like actually be with my partner uh, every day for an extended period of time. Um, You know, most relationships that I've had since I've been an adult have uh, incorporated extended periods of separation um, for Mm. sometimes even months at a time. Um, It feels really good to come home every night 
and to have that person there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's possible, I would like to spend at least somewhat less time on the road than I used to. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm used to doing six months on the road or a little bit more, um, sometimes even a lot more. Uh, and I would like to tour smarter and not harder uh, for yeah. the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I I guess, you know, there's... I mean, there are so many things that I've learned about myself over the last year. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's there are so many things that, like, uh, I'm much more comfortable with about myself in the last year. I mean, the last years have been really mm-hmm. important to me as a, as a human being uh, and my formation as a human being. You know, like, I, you know, I think that uh, there are parts of myself that... I was afraid of for far too long um, or parts of myself that I was afraid to let out into public because I was afraid of being judged um, and how people would judge me. Like, I think that I have for most of my life, for example, like, you know, I pass as cisgendered, uh, you know, like, and, you know, like, and, you know, I like cross-dressing and I'm bisexual and I never would have wanted to like, you know, like really talk about that because of, uh, how country music is. Uh, and you know, over the last, uh, couple of years, I've become very much more, uh, able to like, um, to be in tune with those things of myself to be, uh, I think part of me making the resolution that I was going to be, a lot more overtly politically active and that I wasn't going to let like the chorus of country music trolls silence me or the fear of like of losing fans and revenue silence me into submission has like uh, opened up uh, an enormous amount of boldness in me that I at times in my life uh, really didn't have access to. Um, and especially over the last year, spending a lot of time, like either, you know, like only with one other person and talking to them about a lot of things or within my own mind has really, uh, given me a lot more perspective on the things that are important to me, um, and what I'm willing to talk about, uh, and what I want to talk about, you know, I mean, I, I, it's crazy to me because I think about all the things that I was so boldly willing to talk about when I was like, uh, you know, a few years ago, you know, uh, mental health and personal progress. And, you know, like, I mean, I was obviously willing to like make stands against like racism and fascism and stuff like that, but I wasn't willing to turn that into the focal point of like my social media presence because I was scared that if I did it too much, it would run people off, you know? Um, you know, like those things are things that, I look back and I'm like, why did you even care? Like, you know, there were entire years mm-hmm. where like, you know, like I was sort of dying inside and really depressed. And like, I was living a mostly predominantly like very hedonistic lifestyle because those were the only things that were giving me joy because I wasn't feeling like myself, you know, like, and part of that was because I was squashing a lot of shit, you know, like about myself. And, 
Um, I was really, really unhappy in a lot of ways also. So uh, in other ways, supplementally, as far, uh, aside from just like those things that I felt like I was like kind of pushing away. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I've learned that I just don't fucking care what other people think about me. You know, like when I know that I am doing the right thing. I don't care that people who like are closed minded think I'm an asshole. I don't care that people who aren't willing to like uh, engage in critical thought, you know, like uh, think that I am a an asshole and that they wish that I would shut up and sing. Like, I don't care about any of that anymore. You know, like, it's just like, I found my fucking bravery, you know, like, and like, I just, uh, that's one thing that I will have taken away from this time period that I will never let go of. Thank you. (laughs) That was really beautiful. Um, and then I guess it speaks to the last song on the album, which is Holy Sparrow, which I think, is a lot about social media as you wrote in your explainer notes and how we can perceive ourselves and how that can also be damaging. Yeah. I I think that, you know, especially like that can be really damaging when you look at other people and what they have. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and yeah, you know, I came to a point like, uh, a a couple of years ago I had like a epiphany that took a while for me to really like to, for it to grow to fruition, you know what I mean? And for me to actually like really take it to heart and start to like put it into practice because you know, like it's like you start with an idea and some ideas are really great ideas and they do these beautiful things. Some things are really awful ideas and they work their way into you. And over time they like kind of like uh, cause damage to like your inner, you know, like programming and your psychology and stuff like that. But like somebody said something to me, um, you know, and it was it was a friend of mine named Adam Fawcett. Uh, he's an amazing, mm-hmm. tremendous songwriter. He's one of my best friends in music. I absolutely adore him. And I think that, uh, you know, he said to me, we were on tour and I was really depressed. And we were talking about, I was talking about my career and there was, you know, many people toured with me and were punished by me talking about my mm-hmm. sadness of my career at whatever stage I was at. Um, but you know, he said something to me that, I, that really changed my fucking life. And he said, you know, he was like, I look at you and I see you and you're like over these hills. Like you've like passed, you're like, you know what I mean? Like you've made it over these hills that like I can see in the distance, you know what I mean? Like, and I look at where you're at in your career and I'm like, man, I wish I could fucking get to there, you know, like, but you're like miserable where you are, you know, like. And like, I realized that he was telling me that he wanted to get to where I was. He was seeing my career and being like, wow, that guy's really, you know, like, you know, doing well, you know, like, and, you know, another friend of mine, Joey Kneiser, he said to me, he was like, you know, out of all of our friends, other than like John Moreland and Lucero, you're like doing better than almost everybody, you know, like, yeah. and he was like, you, you should really you know, realize that. And like those two things, like those two respected peers of mine, you know, like saying to me, those things really started a process in my brain that like has led me to where I am now, which is to like, 
be thankful. You know what I mean? Like no matter what I see, like someone else, like over those other hills having, you know what I mean? Like they're experiencing a totally different set of like, of difficulties, you know, like, and probably, you know, like they, you know, I mean, I hope that they're like, that they're really happy where they are, but no matter what it is that I perceive as being great that they have, they're still experiencing inner turmoil and disappointment and like all this other stuff. And it's just in a different, you know, like it's in a different, like deployment. It's in a different pattern. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's still, uh, entirely human to like, I don't know, to be disappointed when you lay out, when you have carefully laid out plans and they don't work out, you know, like, or to see other people that have things that you, feel like you should have or that you want to have like that you feel entitled to or whatever and like in writing Mm -hmm. holy sparrow for me it's like almost like uh putting entitlement to bed you know what i mean like it's like even like all these other things if you fixate on them too much they'll break your heart you know like but if you allow yourself to see the things that you have if you read if you reprogram yourself to like, and when I say this, I know that there are a lot of people that aren't as privileged as I am and aren't as privileged mm-hmm. as other people. I'm not taking that into like, I'm not trying to discount that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, uh, there was a time when I felt powerless and there was a time when I felt like I had nothing that I wanted or that I deserved. And, you know, like, and the truth is, is that I just didn't have all the other trappings of success that other people had that I was, you know what I mean? That I was coveting, you know? And when we look at it, like at the lens of society or at society through the lens of social media, it becomes really easy to look at other people's lives and to like covet those lives and, and feel like, why isn't my life like that? You know, like, mm-hmm. and you know, like, a lot of people are struggling through adversity that like actually really don't have, you know, like the skills or like the, the means, you know, like to overcome those struggles. Uh, and when you take like somebody like me who realizes that not only do I have so much, but I also have all of this capital that I can fucking spend to help other people. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and to like lift up the fucking, you know, like, uh, other human beings and to make other people aware of all of this stuff. I realized like my life is actually pretty good, you know, like, and you know, like, and I'm not like, when I say these things, I'm not trying to say that all human beings should be able to look at their lives and say like, Oh, I actually have it pretty good because some people that's actually not real, you know, like, mm-hmm. If, I do believe that if you're alive, that like, you know, like the capacity for things to get better is there, you know, like, and that if you're yeah. willing to keep struggling, you know, like the capacity for things to get better, you know, like can potentially manifest, like that doesn't mean that it will, you know, like, because a lot of yeah. people will struggle for their entire lives and mm-hmm. never make headway. You know, like, I never mm-hmm. feel like they're getting to a place where, like, they actually can even have their head above water or they can breathe. But 
if you don't try also, then it's going to be much more difficult to actually get to that place, you know? And, and a lot of us, like, we may not have the tools right now, but the tools do exist out there, you know, like for us to like grow as people mm-hmm. and for us to like work towards mm-hmm. like doing something that's better. Entitlement was one of the worst things that I ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, that One of the most detrimental, toxic things that I ever finally was able to like look at and root out and realize uh, wasn't giving me anything. You know, um, and and I mean that in every single like uh, way that it could materialize. And mm-hmm. one of uh, and I don't know that I would have been able to realize exactly how much uh, privilege I had, you know, like and uh, how much when I was negatively interacting with the world and thought that like things weren't going my way and the world was against me was really just me fixating on things that I saw other people have that I thought I should also have that I deserved, you know, like, and like, and really I have, no like you know mandate to feel like I should hold you know like those things and own them or have them and many of those things were not even remotely fucking uh, healthy for somebody to desire you know Mm -hmm. and once I realized that like you know like I started to become a much healthier and saner person also because like, I think that, uh, this is, you know, honestly, I don't know if any of this interview is going to be workable or like, or this last part <laughs> is going to be workable or really worth like, no, don't giving be silly. People, yeah. But, but, yeah. But like, you know, I, I actually like came to a point, uh, with my, uh, like, hetero white privilege you know like being Mm -hmm. passing and stuff like that where I realized that like I did have all this fucking power you know like and and I felt like I wanted I wanted equality and uh, and I wanted equity for people but I didn't want to have to give up my piece of it in -hmm. order for that to happen you know like that I was like why can't somebody else give up their piece of it. I've already had it so fucking hard anyway. You know, like, look at my shitty life. You know? And then one day I was like, if you're not willing to give this up, then nobody else is going to be willing to give it up. You know, like, if you're not willing to, like, isolate these things that are fucking incredibly problematic and toxic, you know, like, and say, like, I don't fucking want that. You know what I mean? Like, then how do you expect the world to get better. How can you just sit there from your place of like, of, you know, like of privilege and like hope that you can hold on to yours while other people have to give up theirs. You know what I mean? Like, and, Mm -hmm. and like, once I got to that place, it was just kind of like, Mm -hmm. like where I realized like that's idiotic 
what do you care about more? You know what I mean? Like your privilege, your power, or a better fucking world, you know? Like, and like once I got to the point where I was able to actually like look at it like from uh, like a non-self-serving egotistical perspective, you know what I mean? Like where I could say to myself, like, this is more important than whatever I think is like best or easiest for me. Then it's like, I took a step that like, you know what I mean? Like it was like easy to jump off of the highest, like diving board into the swimming pool, you know, Mm -hmm. because at that point I was like, Oh, well this is what's up. So you know what? Fuck it. Here I go. Ploosh. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for spending your evening with me. Yeah, I really appreciate your time and the beautiful, the beauty in your soul. Uh, as intense as it is to say about a an hour long chat, I do appreciate it. Well, thank and you so thank much. You. And likewise, I really appreciate you having me on and talking to me and stuff. It really, it's <laughs> amazing to me. I appreciate it. There's a tale of a holy sparrow. How it came to lose its wings How its eyes would betray them Leaving only songs to sing All the saddest songs they'd sing Gifted unto sparrows All the things that they could see Moon, the stars, the mothers and the babies The sadly watched from far Always watching far away May the wind take me tomorrow For to fly in blue west skies Wrapped in feathers with you my love We would lay our heads at night Oh, holy sparrow
All original content is copyright Adobe and Teardrops. All original music is copywritten by their respective artists.